Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A scathing report lays bare the issues of gender-based violence in the defence forces. What is clear is really we have to listen to those on the ground and they want to see a lot of these strategic high-level commitments that have been made translated um, into real action on the ground. As the government faces a no-confidence vote over housing, the Land Development Agency says there's room for 67,000 houses on state land. But when will they be built? And later, the government doubles the maximum fines for the owners of dangerous dogs. But are they going far enough? We speak to vet Pete Wedderburn. But we'd love to hear from you at home, so do join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight's VMTV. We begin tonight with an utterly shocking report on the Defence Forces and the way it treats men and women. The year-long independent review into gender-based violence, harassment and bullying has recommended a full statutory inquiry into the controversy and the language in the report could not have been clearer. It said, and I quote, at best, the Defence Forces barely tolerates women and at worst, verbally, physically, sexually and psychologically abuses women in its ranks. No representative from the Defence Forces was available for the show this evening, but they did release a video online reacting to the report. Take a listen. The Independent Review Group's report on the Defence Forces has now been published. The findings are stark and we need to change. I must restate that there is no place for any form of abuse or failure to act on any form of inappropriate behaviour in the Defence Forces. It will not be tolerated and the perpetrators responsible for such actions will be held to account. Well, the Taunashtha Michael Martin spoke as the report was released and said anyone guilty of sexual assault should not be in the Defence Forces. He said the people who put pressure for the report to be released deserved to be listened to. Then I will be bringing the report to Cabinet. The report has a significant number of, of recommendations, um, which in themselves uh, are, 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 are profound in terms of their impact. I think I've met a lot of groups yesterday and what is clear is really we have to listen to those on the ground, uh, all ranks, and the sense that they're impatient for change um, and they want to see a lot of these strategic high-level commitments that have been made translated um, into real action on the ground. Uh, and that will be the objective coming out of today's meeting. Well, let's bring in our panel this evening. I'm joined by Senator Lisa Chambers from Fianna Foyle and Labour TD Ian O'Reardon, 
Louise Byrne, political correspondent at the Irish Mirror, and independent Senator Tom Clonan, a former captain in the armed forces. And on Skype this evening, I'm joined by Honor Murphy, a spokesperson for the Women of Honor group, the group who have been credited as a catalyst for the establishment of this report. But I want to come to you first, Louise, because we hear words like shocking and stark, but I do think the detail of this did take um, a lot of people by surprise. It's based, to be clear, on the lived experiences, the first-hand testimony of those who have worked within the Defence Forces. It is, and I think that's what does make it so stark and so shocking. And I think we had heard reports of how shocking it was going to be, but I don't think anyone was actually prepared for how severe it would be. So several things in the report that kind of stuck out to everyone. And they said it was, there was a discernible pattern of rape and sexual assault that happened in barracks, it happened in mess areas, it happened on naval ships, on, on a trips abroad. It was told that women were told to put two locks on their door if there had been an attempt to assault them, which is shocking in itself as the woman should have to take the action thereafter. But however, um, there were spiked drinks, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic with drugs. And um, there was violence during training sessions where people were kicked when doing sit-ups, punched in the stomach when parading. And um, there was this mention of tubbing, um, which was used as a punishment. And what that is essentially is placing an individual in a barrel with chemicals, oil, airplane fuel, or deceased animal carcasses or other matter um, as a form of punishment or hazing. And I think what was really shocking was that 25% of people who took part in this review group said that they had experienced sexual harassment in the Defence Forces. So a really tough read. Um, I think I was quite taken aback by it. I was kind of reeling for the afternoon after reading it, to be honest, and I didn't even get most of the way through. It was nearly 400 pages long. But I think when people say they are shocked by the testimonies in it, I think they do mean that because while people were expecting this to be bad, I don't think they were expecting it to be as severe as it actually was. Yeah, it just spoke, I think, to this very, very toxic culture where young recruits, men and women, were treated without any dignity or without any respect. There was harassment, there was bullying, there was intimidation, wasn't there? Yeah, and I think what was really interesting in the report is, you know, we've heard a lot about women and how women were treated, but the report was actually keen to emphasise that this happened to men as well in some instances, and this wasn't a safe working environment for men or for women. And there was another really interesting line in the report that said, you know, social norms and gender norms have moved on so much in the last couple of years, but the norms and the kind of the traditions in the defence forces were not representative of today's society. If anything, they were of one generation, two generations, maybe more gone past, and that the defence forces really needed to come up to speed and treat people how people are treated in workplaces now and not this kind of antiquated fashion that they are being treated in within the defence forces. So looking at women the way society perhaps would have viewed women in the 19th century? Absolutely, it seems to be. And I mean, you, you said yourself, there was a line in it that said women are barely tolerated in the defence forces. And I think that really has to be looked at, especially if we want to attract women into the defence forces. We hear so often about how we need women in these roles and in these important things. I don't think any woman would want to join the defence forces after reading this report. So I think what's important now is how do you tackle this? Uh, Tom Clonan, you exposed sexual violence within the defence forces in your research 20 years ago. So how do you feel reading this? report today because what was so clear in this report today that what we read is not historical. This is happening in the Defence Forces as we sit here in this studio tonight. Everything that's in the IRG report was in my doctoral thesis in 2023 years ago. The military authorities have known about this for 23 years in detail. The causes, the patterns of sexual violence and the solutions. 
I interviewed 60 of my female colleagues across Army, Naval Service, Air Corps, and everything that you describe, sexual assault, rape of both men and women was reported in that research. So the question has to be asked, what have the general staff been doing for the last 23 years? And I hope that the statutory inquiry that is promised brings some of those general staff to account, some of whom because are there serving... there isn't accountability in this report. No, there, some of those are serving today. That Look, wasn't within the terms of one, reference. One of I the... just want to, sorry, Tom, just, there was one other thing within the report um, that really struck me, is what happened if somebody did raise a complaint? Yeah, what so, happened if you uh, said, this has happened to me? There was, was fabricated counterclaims yeah. made against that so, person. So one of the recurring features of the culture of the defence sources as set out by the judge-led inquiry is a culture of reprisal and retribution. And so they describe the, the norms as being from the 19th century as they apply for women. And the report actually states that a woman in the Irish Defence Forces, and this is a judge-led inquiry saying this in 2023, is considered an object rather than a full human being. And anybody who raises a concern about sexual violence or sexual assault or inappropriate behaviour is subject to this retaliation. And the report outlines the triggers for that retaliation. It's worth a listen. The member of the Defence Forces who makes a complaint to the redress of wrongs policy will be subject to retaliation and reprisal. A person who doesn't fit the perpetrator's image of a Defence Forces soldier. The person who speaks up and calls it straight. The member who stands up to inappropriate behaviour. The member who has a baby. All of these people are... Sub and this is a judge-led inquiry. It's not me saying this. So there this would have been the woeful underreporting within the Defence Forces if because people didn't trust that their complaint the would women be of honour, The women respect. of honour, each and every one of them, have been subjected to the most appalling reprisal, which compounds the trauma of the assault and the abuse that they've, they've uh, experienced. I've experienced reprisal. 23 years of it. It's still ongoing. Yeah, there were just two other And if the within... Defence Forces if the general staff had expended their energies in changing the culture and identifying the perpetrators instead of in investing all of their energy in reprisal and retaliation, we wouldn't be in this situation. And that's why they need to be called to account. Yeah. They've known about this for 23 years. And, and that video that you showed is disingenuous in that it doesn't acknowledge that. OK, I just want to look at just two other things within the report before we get to um, you know, some of the recommendations. The negative effect on the mental health as a consequence of a combination of psychological torture tactics it talks about. And it also asks that the, the statutory inquiry conducts a study of deaths by suicide of current and former members of the Defence Forces. This is a real impact on people's lives. Yeah, well, this has all been set out over the last 23 years. And I commend the IRJ group for being so explicit. And they conclude, the IRG, the Independent Review Group, concludes that the Defence Forces is unable or unwilling to make the changes that are needed to provide a safe working environment that affords dignity okay. and respect with, in compliance with the law and good leadership. Okay, I Basically, 88% of women in the Defence Forces in the last year, 88% reported that they had experienced at least two types of serious sexual harassment. 17% of men. That is a very, very dysfunctional and toxic organisation. If right. it's not a safe place for women, it cannot purport 
to defend or protect the state if it's not safe for 51% of the population. Okay, I now, just want to go to... I, sorry, I wish, I wish the chief of staff. Here. I wish the chief of staff the best of luck, but he's got to show leadership in this regard. All right, let me just go to one of the women of honour who have, as I said, been credited uh, for bringing this report to people's attention because they very bravely came forward uh, and spoke to Katie Hannan uh, a couple of years ago. The findings have shocked a lot of people, but I would imagine, Honour, that they have not shocked you or any of the women of Honour. You've experienced this firsthand. No, uh, unfortunately, they haven't shocked us, and they're just saying what we have always maintained from the start. Are the Defence Forces a safe place for women today? No, and I think it will be a long time before people will feel safe there, and they, they have a lot of work to do. Are women protected at this point, do you think, in any way? Um, are they protected? Technically, they are, but in reality, I don't, I don't think they are. The long-term impacts of this, I know you left the Defence Forces in 2021. Have they been, been difficult to live with honour? They have, and I suppose I've been lucky enough to find the Women of Honour since I have left, and um, they have definitely helped me through this. But for other women that have been going through this for years, it must be just so much harder for them or the people that haven't raised their head above, above the parapet yet. I mean, you didn't take part in this review. You wanted it to be a statutory inquiry. Are you satisfied now that you are going to get that statutory inquiry and what do you think that the terms of reference need to be? Um, well, the terms of reference need to be victim-led. We need to absolutely be involved in the terms of reference this time. Um, there is a little bit of conflict here because the report is saying that um, it's a statutory fact-finding process, whereas we need it, we need it to be clear that we're looking for a, a full public commission of inquiry and it's, they're saying it's going to be a statutory inquiry, but we are not clear with the tarnished down. We need that meeting soon to find out and get a clearer picture. All right, let me just go to um, my panel here, Lisa Chambers. There's, there's so many things that are shocking about this report. The fact that it's not historical. The fact that, as Tom Clonan says, he identified this 23 years ago and one of the other um, women of honour made a protected disclosure to the Minister for Justice back in 2017. And yet, here we are reading that this is happening in our Defence Forces in 2023 and it's happened under countless Minister of Defence's watch. Yeah, I mean, I think today's report is extremely shocking. I served myself for 13 years in the Reserve Defence Forces. It's an organisation I know very well. Um, and it had a hugely positive impact on my life in my formative years. So it is, it's deeply upsetting and disappointing to read what has happened in this organisation that's so important. The Defence Force is so important and there are many, many fine people serving in it. But what's very clear from the report is that so many women, in particular women, and of course some men as well, but in particular women, were um, massively mistreated, sexually assaulted, in worst cases raped, and that those that came forward to try and get um, justice were, were not facilitated. In fact, they were tried. They were kept quiet. So there's huge problems. Did you there. ever witness anything like this in your time within the reserve forces? No, never. And I've, I've thought about this, and my experience was so positive. And you know, it is um, it is predominantly men in the organisation. I think it, you know, the reserve defence forces even has even less women than than, than the PDF. 
Um, but no, I had a, a very positive experience and never had any issues in, in respect of what we're talking about tonight. Um, but clearly, many, many people did over many years and it's still ongoing. Um, so, you know, I think that the Women of Honour have done a great service to the, to the state and to people. But isn't it wrong, though, that there were protected disclosures made about sexual assaults within the Defence Forces to the Minister for Justice and yet it took these women coming forward coming publicly, sharing their stories, sharing their experiences before we get to this point where we have this report and we still don't even have the statutory inquiry. That's yeah, I mean, not good enough, is it? Well, the IRD report is, is leading now to, to a statutory inquiry and that's been committed to by government and government have said that the recommendations contained in the report, that they will follow through on all of those. So I think that's a really good progressive step and it's a step in the right direction. You know, I think what's Why really terrible... To start? Well, I think what's really terrible is that within the organisations, within the Defence Forces, it investigates itself. There's a command structure. You make complaints up the line. People are actively discouraged, clearly, from making these types of complaints. So there's a cultural shift that's needed. Um, you know, in a predominantly male organisation, these are clearly issues that have, have come out of that type of environment, of that toxic, poisonous environment that mean it's not safe for women to serve currently in our defence forces and we what have to change that. What has been done to protect those people today? Because it's happening, as Tom said, 88% of those women surveyed said they've had um, sexual harassment experience in the last with at least one, if not two, in the last year. I mean, well, what's been done to protect them here and now? Well, let me be very clear. If anything of that nature happens to an individual, they should come forward to the Gardaí. And that's the place to make those complaints. And I think now that the lid has been blown off this and that we know in full detail, in black and white, the terrible offences that have taken place over many years and are still, are still taking place, I think there's been a shift... You're saying, you're saying the Minister for Defence didn't know about this, didn't know before now? Well, I think the Minister for Defence, in fairness uh, to Micheál Martin, who, who took over just a couple, couple of months ago, um, you know, the and report... I include, I include previous Ministers of Defence well, in that, obviously. I, appreci I appreciate that, but, you know, they were awaiting this report. I think the report is very detailed, it's been very extensive, I think broadly it's been welcomed, and there are key recommendations, not just the statutory inquiry, but the setting up in the establishment of an external review body to ensure transparency and accountability in the Defence okay. Forces going forward. So the key point is we have an opportunity now to change, to transform our Defence Forces, to make it the kind of organisation that women and men want to serve in because we need our Defence Forces. But for a lot of people, Ian, it's going to be too little too late, isn't it? Well, this is, this is a national scandal. I mean, it is a national scandal. It, it has that type of uh, feel of it. And, um, you know, as Thomas said, this is not news because Tom has been working in this area for 23 years. Um, quite clearly, we have a massive issue still in this country about the treatment of women. And we had discussions last week about the Kerry babies and what Ireland was like in, in, in the 80s, but this is contemporaneous stuff. Many of the people who I'm sure are responsible for this are still in the Defence Forces. Uh, how are we going to deal with that? Now, I'm glad Lisa has said that this will lead to a strategy inquiry, and that's what ourselves and the Labour Party have been calling for, Mark Walls, our Defence spokesperson. But I'm minded to think of where else is such abuse taking place? in the public service? Are there other male-dominated entities yeah. within the public service where I'm just wondering, we though, need to have I mean, a review? Those women of honour, they asked yeah. for a statutory inquiry when they came forward 18 months ago and they didn't get it and that's why they didn't participate in this review. Yeah. Was time wasted? Look, I'm, lo I'm loath to make a political point on it because I, I think the issue is so serious but I think they should have been listened to because the bravery they've shown and I know comments about going to the Gardaí is, is all well and good, but in that type of environment, I can just imagine how fearful somebody will be for their career um, and for their own mental health if they were to go to the Gardaí or break ranks, as it were. And yes, I think probably 18 months ago, we should have had the statutory inquiry, but we can have it now. 
But I would make this point. We can't wait for another scandal and some other agency and some other uh, arm of the state for us to, you know, chase after that issue. I think we have to have a review of this nature into other areas of the public service. I can think of Angarda Shiakana. I can think of politics, where I work, which is where we work, which is a male-dominated entity as well. We may find nothing, but it's better to do a review and find nothing than not to do a, a review and then as a way for something to come that? forward. Uh, in short, no. Um, but I take the point Aon's making, and I think it's a well-intentioned, but it wouldn't be my view. Why? I don't think there's a need for it, and it hasn't been asked for. Um, I, you uh, know, I went from working... I was in the Defence Forces, which is male-dominated. I can, can see the, the issues there. Uh, as a woman working in politics, I'm not sure we need a review of the same nature, um, and I have no reason to well, think public service I, requires... I think the, the issue in the Defence Forces is replicated in other, in other parts of the public service, where there is male domination, power imbalance, and that leads to issues that have been raised. Now, I don't think we're going to have the same level of issue, but no, if there the is some... We don't have any evidence But we don't, but we don't do know. We? But what if there was? We'd all feel very stupid in 10 years' time if somebody came forward and said, this was happening actually to me right. at the same time I, that these things were happening. I think the Defence, Defence Forces is a very specific example, though, like it's, you're, you're living on barracks, all these kind of things. I think it's a very set example. Now, I'm not saying that there, I, I'm, I, there's and issues in every industry. I just want to go back. I want to go back to this to this report and the recommendations. Bring us through the recommendations within this report, Louise. I think the main one is for that statu statutory inquiry, which the women have honor, of honour have asked for. Um, Taoiseach, or Taoiseach, rather, saying that that will be set up. He's hopeful, possibly by the end of the year. He didn't want to put a timeline on it, but when he was put to him by the end of the year, he said yes. I think the other really interesting thing that it looked at, and you mentioned it earlier, was the fact that it's going to look into to the amount of suicides that have either occurred or are occurring into the Defence Forces, because I don't think that's an aspect of it that has been listened to. I think there's other important things in there, such as resetting gender norms, resetting culture. But I think the big one is going to be that reporting structure and that people are going to be encouraged to go to the guards, because if you looked at the, the figures earlier of some of the incidents that were perhaps reported to the military police, none of them were, were reported to the guards. And that was quite a stark figure to see 0% reported to the guards in that report. So I think that is going to be the main kind of reform that is being pushed by the government on this. Yeah, one of the other uh, aspects of this report, Thomas, it said that this is an organisation that is resistance, resistant to change, that there have been attempts up to even 2017 and reports of attempts up to 2017 to, to change cultures. But despite best efforts and intentions, there's zero evidence that there yeah. was change. So how difficult is that going to well, be? Well, the, the report clearly identifies senior management, that the, 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 the example comes from the top, that this is a top-down, oppressive, retaliatory, reprisal-laden... Uh, reprisal is endemic within the organisation. That's set out clearly by the judge-led inquiry. Not by me, it's set out there. There was a full government, independent government inquiry into my research, by the way, in 2001, which reported in 2003. It was commissioned by a Fianna Fáil Minister for Defence who did exactly what it says in the tin. So government, and everybody has known about this for 20 years, but I would commend Simon Coveney and Micheál Martin. I do think that they are genuine in their desire to actually deal with this. The Secretary-General of the Department of Defence, Jackie McCrum, she's the first person in 23 years to reach out to me to ask, what can we do about this? And she met the Women of Honour, as did Simon Coveney, as did Micheál Martin. What we need now yeah. is leadership from the Chief of Staff. And what we particularly need from the General Staff is, please, no more reprisal, no more cancellation or gaslighting. Show some leadership, 
get to grips with this because this is the biggest fundamental existential challenge to our defence forces, uh, you know, uh, above and beyond anything else. Can we change the, the, the figure at the moment is that there's 7% of um, the Defence Forces female. 7% of our Defence Forces. It's lower than in any other sector across the Irish state. What's it going to take to change that? Well, I just have to get in step with the international military, have an evidence-based professional military. 230,000 women uh, participated in the Gulf War back in the 1990s. You know, women participate in military operations all around the world, uh, I'm not saying, you know, what makes the Defence Forces different is their culture, which clearly says here it's embedded in the 19th century. And in relation to the artificial class system within the organisation, the report says that it needs a 70-year leap forward. They're back in the 1950s. They've known about this for 23 years. Right. We need accountability from the general staff. Some of the members of the general staff were people who participated in the uh, reprisals and, uh, in fairness, against the me. And they that have today. been promoted but they need to be called to account. Some of them should resign and others should be sacked. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Tom Clonan and to Honour Murphy, Lisa, Ian and Louise will be staying with me as we look towards a vote of no confidence in the government tomorrow. Do they have enough votes to survive? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Tomorrow, the government faces a confidence vote that, if they lose, could mean the collapse of the government and a possible general election. It's all over the issue of housing and the ending of the eviction ban. One of the big issues is having the land to build new houses, and today the Land Development Agency released a report stating that 67,000 houses could be built on state-owned land. Here is the chairman of the LDA. Some of them would be available in the shorter term, others are more complex. There could be existing legitimate services going on in the sites already. So it's, it's not straightforward, uh, but I think by setting out what the state land uh, comprises, that for the first time we can have a proper coherent debate and discussion about what that land should be used for. Police Chambers, Ian O'Riordan and Louise Byrne are still with me and I'm also joined on Skype by Richard O'Donoghue, independent TD and also a building contractor. You're very welcome to the programme. Uh, Louise, I'm going to start 
with you. What was the purpose of today's report and what was its findings? Yeah, so this was a report that was carried out by the LDA and this is one of a number of reports that they are going to be tasked with going forward. Now it is worth saying the LDA was set up in 2018 and this report is only coming to light five years later so I think that's raised a few eyebrows. But basically what the report found was that the government has potential to build 67,000 homes on 83 state-owned sites. Now this is kind of staggered over a good couple of years. So now, what, by a good couple of years, somewhere between 5, 10, 15, kind of an indeterminate figure, yeah, wasn't it? Really? infinity really. Um, so they're saying that in the next five to 10 years, there's potential to build 9,760 homes. Then in the medium to long term, you're looking at just under 17,500. And then longer again, just under 40,000. No real timelines on that. Um, but I think some of the sites that they are looking at, and the Taoiseach said this in the doll earlier, they're not without their issues and they, they might not be sites that you can build things on immediately. And give people an example of the type of sites that we're talking about, because they're right around the country, aren't they? Yeah, so this report kind of looked at the five major cities and towns um, the kind of the more interesting sites that I think everyone is talking about today include the Central Bank National Mint site down in Sandyford, and um, you've sites at Leopardstown Racecourse in Leopardstown in South Dublin, and um, the Dublin Bus Depot on Cunningham Road, and also the Cahill Brewer Barracks in Rat Mines. Now, as the Taoiseach said in the doll earlier, the issue with the site like the Cahill Brewer Barracks is you already have 600 people living there, so what do you do with them? Where do you move them on? to actually build homes and build stuff on these sites. And so, what was the political reaction to this report today? Because it was a long-awaited report, wasn't it? There were great promises coming uh, when the LDA was set up that it was going to identify a lot of you know, potential state land and build a lot of houses. Yes, yeah, so, well, I mean, in 2018, they said that they were to deliver 150,000 homes in 20 years. And I think the sod is just being turned on the kind of the first of the developments in the last while. So a long way out from hitting the targets that they had set. Um, there was a lot of anger over this report, I think it's fair to say, in the Dáil earlier. Um, Social Democrats leader Holly Curran said it was pathetic um, that it was only coming out now, especially at a time when you have such a housing crisis. Mary Lou Macdonald questioning whether even your kids or your grandkids are going to be able to live in these homes at the pace that things are moving. But I think the real criticism is that this was set up in 2018 to great accolade, with great hopes, and so far it just doesn't seem to have delivered. All right, let's take a listen to Social Democrats leader Holly Curran reacting to this report in the Dáil today. Five years after its establishment, the Land Development Agency has finally gotten around to conducting a review of property assets controlled by state companies. What did it find? Fewer than 10,000 homes are capable of being delivered on these state lands within the next decade. It really is pathetic. Pathetic? Lisa Chambers, would you agree? I think she called it a sick joke. Uh, I wouldn't, and I, I wouldn't use that language either. Um, the, the report that came out today was uh, it was a statutory requirement to report to government to do an over a review of all of the state land um, across 10 of our key hubs, so our five main cities, Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway, Waterford, and then regional hubs as well, like Sligo, Dundalk. Um, it was a really extensive body of work. It was the first time ever the state has conducted a full review of all of its land banks right across the state. Um, I believe about 180,000 legal portfolios had to be gone through to establish exactly what the state owned and where it was. So it wasn't a small body of work. Um, but the so LDA... You don't think it took too long? So I, I mean, don't think it took... It was established in 2018 and it's now 2023. Well, sorry, it was, the LDA was established in 2018 the statutory requirement to do this work was I think came in 2020. So no, I don't. I think this body of work it was going to take a considerable amount of time because of the the, the extent of documents that had to be gone through. But, are you but surprised it will by, inform. I suppose, I'm just looking at what they're saying here, which is 67,000. Given the fact that they looked, as you say, over 180,000 portfolios of land that are in you know state ownership, mm -hmm. they 
reckon 67,000 houses could be built on those? Well, 67,000 67, is not an insignificant amount. Um, and there's 83 sites identified in our key population centres. Um, it's been broken down into three different classifications. So class one sites are the ones that are deliverable in the shorter term, five to 10 years. And that's 10,000. They've said 10,000 10, yeah. between 10,000 homes in five to 10 years. Do you think that's satisfactory given the crisis, the housing crisis at now, the moment. Maybe you do. Bearing in mind, these are the direct bills on state-owned land. The Land Development Agency also work with private developers on privately owned land to develop properties as well. That's excluding also the 10,000 properties already in train by the LDA, 5,000 direct build and 5,000 built with, with other property owners. So it's excluding that 10,000 properties as well. So it's not an insignificant amount of work, but it is important to acknowledge the extensive review of all of the state-owned land. This has never been done before. This will inform government policy for years to come. It's the first time we've had this inventory done and it was a huge body of work. Okay, and it's a significant uh, number of houses that can be delivered in the short and medium to long uh, term. Ian do you agree with Lisa Chambers or Holly Cairns on this? Which is it? Oh, I, I'd agree with, uh, with Holly Cairns' assessment. I mean, we are the only opposition party to have supported the LDA. We've supported it all along. We think it's the right thing to do. Uh, uh, but you couldn't help be underwhelmed by the report today. And as has been stated, the Taoiseach had to acknowledge that uh, quite a number of these, of these sites will be problematic. And the delivery of anywhere near the 67,000, as, uh, as suggested, is just not going to happen. So um, it's strange that it landed this week in the teeth of a, of a discussion about the eviction ban. Uh, and, and government scrambling around for, for ways to entice independent members to, to vote their way. Uh, certainly, it's, it's part of the discussion. But for us, have, being supporters of the Land Development Agency and want to see it to, to succeed, it certainly is not a good start. No, it doesn't do anything, I think, to counter the suggestion that we're hearing more and more of, Lisa, that the state and state agencies are too slow responding to this crisis. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I listened to, to John Coleman speak today, who's the CEO of the Land Development Agency, and, you know, he did say that the, the delivery time, it, the time it takes to deliver large-scale projects with the current planning system is five to six years. So they are on track to deliver these projects within that time frame. They're not actually lagging behind because the planning system does take quite some time in terms of public procurement, consultation, and then actually building, building the homes. These are huge developments. So, you know, I think, you know, it is important to acknowledge that 67,000 houses is a significant significant number. When Ian says that I disagree with that point. That's the point I'm disagreeing with. That's actually what the Taoiseach acknowledged today. No, the that really some of the sites are problematic and the likelihood of reaching that 67,000 uh, figure in the next 10, 15, 20 years is actually quite unlikely. What, what the Taoiseach said today and what the Thornish has been saying and the Minister for Housing is that some of those sites are classified as easier to deliver, but that the long-term vision has to be to identify sites that could be deliverable in the next 15 to 20 years as well. It's long-term planning, something that governments tend not to be good at. But this is a good body of work that other governments will be able to use down the line. And I think as well the Land Development Agency, yes, it got off to a slow start, as acknowledged by the Taoiseach, but it has bedded in, it is doing its job and it is starting to deliver homes. And we will see over time, over the next 5, 10 to 15 years, that it will become an instrumental organisation. Yeah, for I suppose just for a lot of people, Louise, that's going to be quite slow 
five, 10, 15 years, given the crisis that we well, are Sorry, 10,000 within the next five to 10 years is very realistic, as said by the chief executive of the LDA. But LDH. I think, Lisa, like if, this, if you had been looking at these additional 67,000, pr probably fewer, if we're being honest, homes in the long run, on top of a lot more houses being built, I don't think there would be such anger at this report. It's only recently that the government have started hitting their targets for houses. And if you dig down deeper into them, they're not hitting necessarily specific targets. They didn't necessarily hit the social housing targets. Okay. They hit out the coastal well, rental targets. Sorry, can I so just if they were doing that as well, no, I don't I, think people would no, be No, I actually angry. need to go. Sorry, Lisa. I want to go to Richard O'Donoghue because he's standing uh, by there. One of the other issues that we're hearing recently, um, Richard O'Donoghue, is that the state itself needs to, to get involved. The state needs to become the builder, establish its own construction company, as it were. Do you agree with this idea? I do, I do. In, there is a lot of contractors around the country that would actually work for a government body. They're subcontractors. Their skills are there. We also can see that, that there is a system that can be built with the retrofits. But the main thing that the government haven't taught out is the infrastructure. We went around Limerick with Minister O'Brien visiting five projects where they were delivering housing. Each of the projects, I asked every one of the contractors on site in front of the minister, what is your biggest concern? They said, we can build no more houses because we have storage systems are at max capacity. So this is where we can build. So the government have looked at areas where they have capacity, but they have never looked at the areas that need to be upgraded. So, so and the towns and the villages around Limerick, so they can deliver houses for all but they're looking at it only sites where they have storage capacity. There are a lot of them around the city, and a lot. Of, we've only got two towns in Limerick now that have capacity All right. for building houses. In, in, terms, in terms of it taking between five and ten years to deliver 10,000 houses, as the LDA said today, they said, look, that's a realistic time frame. Do you agree with that? For the LDA, it's probably realistic, but if, for, for builders out there, it's more realistic that they can build houses faster if they have infrastructure. We can build houses in Limerick faster than any LDA can if the infrastructure is in place. The contractors are there to build the houses. The problem we're having is there is no investment in infrastructure, so we can't build houses. All right, let me just go to my panel here because uh, Ian Reardon, um, the, 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 the big catchy slogan from your conference at the weekend was that the Labour Party was going to build up or deliver deliver was the word they used, uh, a million houses over the next 10 years. It was a catchy slogan, but actually when you dug down, it wasn't the truth, was it? Well, it wasn't the truth. Because it wasn't one million new houses, it included 50,000 new houses, new bills per year, well, and 50,000 <laughs> homes that would be refurbished, including homes I, I, I that don't, are I don't think you occupied to, by people. Yeah, that, I, that is correct, I, isn't I, it? I don't think you have to dig down. I don't think you have just had to listen to what Ivana Batrick actually said. Well, listen when Gavin Riley questioned her about it on his programme on Sunday morning, not well, at the Labour Party was, conference, Well, it was quite clear in the speech what she was referring to, which was, I mean, we've been accused of two things. One of those unrealistic, and I was on radio yesterday, and I was told that that's exactly what the government target is so so why why you uh, uh, but that's what i was told so uh, essentially it's a, it's it's 500,000 uh, new builds and yeah it'll be retrofitting and and refurbishment of, of existing stock uh, but what we're trying to do is to show the scale uh, of the issue 
and how we, how we would deal with it because we're constantly told by government that we don't have any plans, we put forward legislation, we put forward right. uh, on renters' rights, etc. We're forced into position now because government didn't accept our legislation last week on showing a demonstrable decrease in homelessness until a point where we feel that we could move on from the eviction ban. Government didn't accept that uh, legislation. That's where we're forced into position to have emotional confidence this week. Yeah, and I, I feel I have to say that over the last couple of weeks that the Labour Party has gotten a bit a bit noisier about this issue. Is this something you're very consciously doing, trying to create noise around no, the, the um, housing issue and to engage in a little bit of political theatre, which some of the other opposition already, parties have been very have good already, at doing I've in the already past, said and the Labour you, Party haven't, in fairness. I've already said to you in this programme how we supported the Land Development Agency. We were the only party in opposition who did because we believe in housing and we're serious about housing. We, I, can, I can bring you back to every single piece of legislation we've introduced since 2017. I can talk about the motion we had last November. I can okay, talk about the motion, the motion we no had in February. Because tomorrow. every single element that we've tried to put forward has been rejected by government. Even last week we were told it, was un it wasn't binding, even if the motion passed. Do you think you'll win? I don't know, but the pressure now is on, is on independents to, who are keeping this government together to, to basically show the colours of their, of their money, if you like, because that's where uh, the power, it, it would appear... Lives and okay. Let me ask and, actually one of the independents. And this uh, is this is a binding vote. Sorry, you can't amend this Richard. vote. It's a binding vote. Uh, Richard Donoghue, how are you going to vote? Have you decided? Well, it's like this. I don't have much confidence in Labour because from 2011 to 2016, they delivered less than 30,000 houses. Mm -hmm. And you're right, they are making noise now because they're fearful of an election, and now they're just starting to make noise. Cause an election. I also don't. I also don't have confidence in the government. So how and are you I going to vote the tomorrow then, Richard? The same way as I voted the last time, I can't vote in favour of the government because of their failure to deliver housing All right. for the people of Ireland. Uh, Lisa, are you confident you're going to win this vote tomorrow? It looks like you probably will. Have you got, have you got the backing and what does it cost again? Uh, well, obviously I can't preempt the vote that will take place. Um, my understanding is that the government will uh, win the vote tomorrow um, and the government is committed and focused on getting the job done and delivering homes and have been doing that. We were up 45% on home delivery last year and we are continuing to increase All right, very numbers. briefly, Louise, how is it looking number-wise at this point? Have you got the, the spreadsheet out? Yeah, I've gone full Gavin Riley with the spreadsheet. <laughs> um, so I'm at about 80 supporting the government, 63 having no confidence and I have about 16 that are undecided or haven't responded to me or say that they're sleeping on it overnight. Now those numbers are subject to change. But I mean, I think the Labour Party know deep down that they were never going to win this motion of no confidence. And I think even with the slight majority that the government have, they were always going to have backing of independence. Now, of course, that's never conditional. But I think like we saw last week, like we've seen in any other confidence vote, they are always able to bring those people on side. So I think it will be quite a sizable majority tomorrow. I don't think there's going to be any walkthrough votes or anything like that. I think there will be right. quite a decisive victory for the government on this one. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Lisa Chambers, to Ian O'Riordan and to uh, Louise Byrne and Richard O'Donoghue. Up next, are we doing enough to stop dangerous dogs in this country? Join us in a few minutes. Well, the issue of dangerous dogs in this country was brought into stark focus just before Christmas when nine-year-old Alejandro Mizan was mauled by a pit bull. That horrendous story focused minds and how the government is planning to double the maximum fines clamped down on these dogs. But is it enough and does the country need to do more? Well, I'm joined by vet Pete Wedderburn. Pete, lovely to speak to you as always. 1,700 
incidents of dogs biting individuals between, I think it was 2017 and 2021, or 2016 and 2021. Do you think the changes um, that they talked about today will lead to a reduction in that figure? Well, I think what we saw today, what was announced, is really just the beginning. It was an interim report. Um, and so I think there's... You couldn't really judge the future based on that. Um, the working group that was set up around just after Christmas, they've been meeting every week. This is their interim report. And what I've heard is that by the middle of the summer, they'll have produced a final report. And even then, that's not the end. Well, see, this whole process actually started a couple of years ago. In 2021, when the Department of Rural and Community Development, what they did is they put out a, a call to everybody involved with dog welfare around the country to, um, to put in submissions as to how they felt things should be reformed. And those, those, um, re the, the, the results of that were all available online. Anybody can go and read those. And they have formed the basis for this working group. This working group now, which is different government departments, that, so that there would be the, the Department of Agriculture, Department of Rural Community Development, and people working in the local authorities, the dog ward and so on, they're in the interdepartmental group. They're looking at what we got from stakeholders a few years ago, and they're saying, how can we put this into practice? So we've got the interim report now with some good recommendations, and then down the road, we're going to see more recommendations. And, and then, that will then go to the stakeholders again for, for everybody who's involved, like... ISPCA, everybody else will look at it all again and then hopefully we'll get really good conclusions from that. OK, but one of the suggestions was that if your dog bites an individual and it ends up in court, that the mm. fine could be increased from 2500 to €2,500, mm. uh, Euro, which is quite a substantial figure. Is, yeah. Does that have, do you think, a deterrent effect? I think it'll have some deterrent effect, but I, I think one of the interesting aspects, when you look into, into these really dangerous, really severe dog uh, bite incidents, what makes a difference isn't actually stuff like heavy legislation. If you look around the world where people have, 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 have kind of tried different ways of doing things, what, what really works is education of people and societies where there's a big focus on making sure people know all about dogs and dog behaviour. Um, for example, in, in some parts of Germany, you have to do, to do a, an exam before you get a dog. And in other countries, before you get a dog licence, you have to actually fill out an online test of some kind. In those jurisdictions, um, there are less of these bad bites because people always tend to think of the big, strong bite, dog that's biting and causing mayhem. In actual fact, there's always a backstory to that. There's always human interactions that have led up to that particular incident. And that's what we really should be looking at as well, is the human interactions, is how humans taught those dogs to be a certain way. That's what happened. It wasn't that the dog was born bad. That's not what happened. Because part of the review is going to be looking at the restricted breeds legislation. Should more breeds of dogs, do you think, be on that list? Should there be certain breeds of dogs that people shouldn't be allowed to be kept as pets? Uh, Does that need to be expanded? I don't... Or is it it's nothing to do with the dogs, do you think? I, 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 I think around the world, restricted breed legislation has been shown not to work. Much as it sounds, it feels like it should do, it doesn't. Um, a heck of a lot of dog bites are by most common dogs that we keep as pets, whether they're collies or Jack Russells or, or whatever. Um, and but perhaps yes, they don't have the, I suppose, potential to cause yeah. the same level of devastation that some of these more, what we call dangerous breeds have. Yes, the, 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 the so-called restricted breeds are very large and very muscular. Um, but even then, there's 
plenty of those dogs that make the most lovely pets, um, yet they're all tired of the same brush. And it is difficult to get this right. For example, there are some people, some individuals with criminal records would, would, would keep these dogs deliberately as weapons to defend themselves when, when the law is trying to enforce stuff. So, so I, I think, think that was one of the suggestions within this report, that if you had a criminal record, um, that you wouldn't be able to keep one of these restricted breeds. Yes, that would be something that would be, I think would be, has been suggested. I think that's a really, really good idea. So you have to try to segment what's going on. But also, there's a, the general trend is to, 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 to look at the deed, not the breed. In other words, if it, one of the other things that's in the report is to have a centralised dog microchip database. At the moment, there's four different databases, and so it's quite hard to work out quickly um, who a dog belongs to. But with a centralised dog database, it'd be very easy to find out which dog you have in front of you. And then what you can do is, if there's ever an incident, incident involving a dog, you can relate it to that dog, and then if it happens again, you can, you can make sure that the dog is punished or the dog's owner is punished, and you're talking about okay. um, dealing with the deed, not, the, not, not just all the breed. Not the breed. All right, yeah. look, we're going to have to leave it there. Peter Butterman, thank you for joining us. Uh, that's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. But from all the team here, good night. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.